Book Eleven, Chapter Seven of the Brothers Karamazov. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giesen. The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett. Book Eleven, Chapter Seven. THE SECOND VISIT TO SMERDYAKOV By that time Smerdyakov had been discharged from the hospital. Ivan knew his new lodging, the dilapidated little wooden house, divided in two by a passage, on one side of which lived Maria Kondratyevna and her mother, and on the other Smerdyakov. No one knew on what terms he lived with them, whether as a friend or as a lodger. It was supposed afterwards that he had come to stay with them as Maria Kondratyevna's betrothed, and was living there for a time without paying for board or lodging. Both mother and daughter had the greatest respect for him, and looked upon him as greatly superior to themselves. Ivan knocked, and on the door being opened went straight into the passage. By Maria Kondratyevna's directions he went straight to the better room on the left, occupied by Smerdyakov. There was a tiled stove in the room, and it was extremely hot. The walls were gay with blue paper, which was a good deal used, however, and in the cracks under it cockroaches swarmed in amazing numbers, so that there was a continual rustling from them. The furniture was very scanty, two benches against each wall and two chairs by the table. The table of plain wood was covered with a cloth with pink patterns on it. There was a pot of geranium on each of the two little windows. In the corner there was a case of icons. On the table stood a little copper samovar with many dents in it, and a tray with two cups. But Smerdyakov had finished tea, and the samovar was out. He was sitting at the table on a bench. He was looking at an exercise book, and slowly writing with a pen. There was a bottle of ink by him, and a flat iron candlestick, but with a composite candle. Ivan saw at once from Smerdyakov's face that he had completely recovered from his illness. His face was fresher, fuller, his hair stood up jauntily in front, and was plastered down at the sides. He was sitting in a party-coloured wadded dressing-gown, rather dirty and frayed, however. He had spectacles on his nose, which Ivan had never seen him wearing before. This trifling circumstance suddenly redoubled Ivan's anger. A creature like that and wearing spectacles. Smerdyakov slowly raised his head and looked intently at his visitor through his spectacles. Then he slowly took them off and rose from the bench, but by no means respectfully, almost lazily, doing the least possible required by common civility. All this struck Ivan instantly. He took it all in and noted it at once, most of all the look in Smerdyakov's eyes, positively malicious, churlish, and haughty. "'What do you want to intrude for?' it seemed to say. "'We settled everything then. Why have you come again?' Ivan could scarcely control himself. "'It's hot here,' he said, still standing, and unbuttoned his overcoat. "'Take off your coat,' Smerdyakov conceded. Ivan took off his coat and threw it on a bench with trembling hands. He took a chair, moved it quickly to the table, and sat down. 
Smerdyakov managed to sit down on his bench before him. To begin with, are we alone? Ivan asked sternly and impulsively. Can they overhear us in there? No one can hear anything. You've seen for yourself. There's a passage. Listen, my good fellow. What was that you babbled as I was leaving the hospital, that if I said nothing about your faculty of shamming fits, you wouldn't tell the investigating lawyer all our conversation at the gate? What do you mean by all? What could you mean by it? Were you threatening me? Have I entered into some sort of compact with you? Do you suppose I'm afraid of you? Ivan said this in a perfect fury, giving him to understand with obvious intention that he scorned any subterfuge or indirectness and meant to show his cards. Smerdyakov's eyes gleamed resentfully. His left eye winked, and he at once gave his answer with his habitual composure and deliberation. You want to have everything above board. Very well, you shall have it, he seemed to say. This is what I meant then, and this is why I said that, that you, knowing beforehand of this murder of your own parent, left him to his fate, and that people mightn't after that conclude any evil about your feelings, and perhaps of something else, too. That's what I promised not to tell the authorities. Though Smerdyakov spoke without haste, and obviously controlling himself, Yet there was something in his voice, determined and emphatic, resentful and insolently defiant. He stared impudently at Ivan. A mist passed before Ivan's eyes for the first moment. How? What? Are you out of your mind? I'm perfectly in possession of all my faculties. Do you suppose I knew of the murder? Ivan cried out at last, and he brought his fist violently on the table. What do you mean by something else, too? Speak, scoundrel! Smerdyakov was silent and still scanned Ivan with the same insolent stare. Speak, you stinking rogue! What is that something else, too? The something else I meant was that you, probably too, were very desirous of your parents' death. Ivan jumped up and struck him with all his might on the shoulder, so that he fell back against the wall. In an instant his face was bathed in tears, saying, "'It's a shame, sir, to strike a sick man.' He dried his eyes with a very dirty blue-check handkerchief and sank into quiet weeping. A minute passed. "'That's enough. Leave off,' Ivan said peremptorily, sitting down again. "'Don't put me out of all patience.' Smerdyakov took the rag from his eyes. Every line of his puckered face reflected the insult he had just received. So you thought, then, you scoundrel, that together with Dmitri I meant to kill my father? I didn't know what thoughts were in your mind then, said Smerdyakov resentfully, and so I stopped you then at the gate to sound you on that very point. To sound what? What? Why that very circumstance, whether you wanted your father to be murdered or not? What infuriated Ivan more than anything was the aggressive, insolent tone to which Smerdyakov persistently adhered. "'It was you murdered him,' he cried suddenly. Smerdyakov smiled contemptuously. "'You know of yourself for a fact that it wasn't I murdered him, and I should have thought that there was no need for a sensible man to speak of it again. "'But why? Why had you such a suspicion about me at the time?' As you know already, it was simply from fear. 
for I was in such a position, shaking with fear, that I suspected everyone. I resolved to sound you, too, for I thought if you wanted the same as your brother, then the business was as good as settled, and I should be crushed like a fly, too. Look here, you didn't say that a fortnight ago. I meant the same when I talked to you in the hospital, only I thought you'd understand without wasting words, and that being such a sensible man you wouldn't care to talk of it openly. What next? Come answer, answer, I insist. What was it? What could I have done to put such a degrading suspicion into your mean soul? As for the murder, you couldn't have done that, and didn't want to, but as for wanting someone else to do it, that was just what you did want. And how coolly, how coolly he speaks. But why should I have wanted it? What grounds had I for wanting it? What grounds had you? What about the inheritance? said Smerdyakov sarcastically, and as it were vindictively. Why, after your parents' death, there was at least forty thousand to come to each of you, and very likely more. But if Fyodor Pavlovich had got married then to that lady, Agrafena Alexandrovna, she would have had all his capital made over to her directly after the wedding, for she's plenty of sense, so that your parent would not have left you two roubles between the three of you. And were they far from a wedding either? Not a hair's breadth. That lady had only to lift her little finger, and he would have run after her to church with his tongue out. Ivan restrained himself with painful effort. Very good, he commented at last. You see, I haven't jumped up, I haven't knocked you down, I haven't killed you. Speak on, so according to you, I had fixed on Dmitri to do it. I was reckoning on him. How could you help reckoning on him? If he killed him, then he would lose all the rights of a nobleman, his rank and property, and would go off to exile. So his share of the inheritance would come to you and your brother, Alexei Fyodorovich, in equal parts. So you'd each have not forty, but sixty thousand each. There's not a doubt you did reckon on Dmitri Fyodorovich. What I put up with from you, listen, scoundrel, if I had reckoned on any one then, it would have been on you, not on Dmitri. And I swear I did expect some wickedness from you at the time. I remember my impression. I thought too for a minute at the time that you were reckoning on me as well, said Smerdyakov with a sarcastic grin. So that it was just by that, more than anything, you showed me what was in your mind. For if you had a foreboding about me, and yet went away, you as good as said to me, You can murder my parent, I won't hinder you. You scoundrel, so that's how you understood it. It was all that going to Chermashnia. Why, you were meaning to go to Moscow, and refused all your father's entreaties to go to Chermashnia, and simply at a foolish word from me you consented at once. What reason had you to consent to Chermashnia? Since you went to Chermashnia with no reason, simply at my word, it shows that you must have expected something from me. No, I swear I didn't shouted Ivan, grinding his teeth. You didn't. Then you ought, as your father's son, to have had me taken to the lock-up and thrashed at once for my words, then. Or at least to have given me a punch in the face on the spot, that you were not a bit angry, if you please, and at once, in a friendly way, acted on my foolish word and went away, which is utterly absurd, for you ought to have stayed to save your parents' life. How could I help drawing my conclusions?' 
Ivan sat scowling, both his fists convulsively pressed on his knees. Yes, I am sorry I didn't punch you in the face, he said with a bitter smile. I could have taken you to the lock-up just then. Who would have believed me? And on what charge could I bring against you? But the punch in the face, oh, I'm sorry I didn't think of it. Though blows are forbidden, I should have pounded your ugly face to a jelly. Smerdyakov looked at him almost with relish. In the ordinary occasions of life, he said in the same complacent and sententious tone in which he had taunted Grigori and argued with him about religion at Fyodor Pavlovitch's table, in the ordinary occasions of life, blows on the face are forbidden nowadays by law, and people have given them up. But in exceptional occasions of life, people still fly to blows, not only among us, but all over the world, be it even the fullest Republic of France, just as in the time of Adam and Eve, and they never will leave off, but you, even in an exceptional case, did not dare. What are you learning French words for? Ivan nodded towards the exercise book lying on the table. Why shouldn't I learn them so as to improve my education, supposing that I may myself chance to go some day to those happy parts of Europe? Listen, monster, Ivan's eyes flashed and he trembled all over. I am not afraid of your accusations. You can say what you like about me, and if I don't beat you to death, it's simply because I suspect you of that crime, and I'll drag you to justice. I'll unmask you. To my thinking, you'd better keep quiet, for what can you accuse me of, considering my absolute innocence? And who would believe you? Only if you begin, I shall tell everything too, for I must defend myself. Do you think I am afraid of you now? If the court doesn't believe all I've said to you just now, the public will, and you will be ashamed. That's as much as to say it's always worthwhile speaking to a sensible man, eh? snarled Ivan. You hit the mark, indeed, and you better be sensible. Ivan got up, shaking all over with indignation, put on his coat, and without replying further to Smerdyakov, without even looking at him, walked quickly out of the cottage. The cool evening air refreshed him. There was a bright moon in the sky. A nightmare of ideas and sensations filled his soul. Shall I go at once and give information against Smerdyakov? But what information can I give? He is not guilty, anyway. On the contrary, he'll accuse me. And in fact, why did I set off for Chermashnya then? What for? What for? Ivan asked himself. Yes, of course, I was expecting something, and he is right. And he remembered for the hundredth time how on the last night in his father's house he had listened on the stairs. But he remembered it now with such anguish that he stood still on the spot as though he had been stabbed. Yes, I expected it then, that's true. I wanted the murder. I did want the murder. Did I want the murder? Did I want it? I must kill Smerdyakov. If I don't dare kill Smerdyakov now, life is not worth living. Ivan did not go home, but went straight to Katerina Ivanovna and alarmed her by his appearance. He was like a madman. He repeated all his conversation with Smerdyakov, every syllable of it. He couldn't be calmed, however much she tried to soothe him. 
he kept walking about the room, speaking strangely, disconnectedly. At last he sat down, put his elbows on the table, leaned his head on his hands, and pronounced this strange sentence. If it's not Dmitri but Smerdyakov who's the murderer, I share his guilt, for I put him up to it. Whether I did, I don't know yet. But if he is the murderer and not Dmitri, then of course I am the murderer too. When Katerina Ivanovna heard that, she got up from her seat without a word, went to her writing-table, opened a box standing on it, took out a sheet of paper and laid it before Ivan. This was the document of which Ivan spoke to Alyosha later on as a conclusive proof that Dmitri had killed his father. It was the letter written by Mitya to Katerina Ivanovna when he was drunk, on the very evening he met Alyosha at the crossroads on the way to the monastery, after the scene at Katerina Ivanovna's when Grushenka had insulted her. Then, parting from Alyosha, Mitya had rushed to Grushenka. I don't know whether he saw her, but in the evening he was at the metropolis, where he got thoroughly drunk. Then he asked for pen and paper, and wrote a document of weighty consequences to himself. It was a wordy, disconnected, frantic letter. A drunken letter, in fact. It was like the talk of a drunken man, who on his return home begins with extraordinary heat telling his wife or one of his household how he has just been insulted, what a rascal has just insulted him, what a fine fellow he is, on the other hand, and how he will pay that scoundrel out and all that at great length, with great excitement and incoherence, with drunken tears and blows on the table. The letter was written on a dirty piece of ordinary paper of the cheapest kind. It had been provided by the tavern, and there were figures scrawled on the back of it. There was evidently not enough space for his drunken verbosity, and Mitya not only filled the margins, but had written the last line right across the rest. The letter ran as follows. Fatal, Katya. Tomorrow I will get the money and repay your three thousand. And farewell, woman of great wrath. But farewell, too, my love. Let us make an end. Tomorrow I shall try and get it from everyone. And if I can't borrow it, I give you my word of honour. I shall go to my father and break his skull and take the money from under the pillow, if only Ivan has gone. If I have to go to Siberia for it, I will give you back your three thousand. And farewell. I bow down to the ground before you, for I've been a scoundrel to you. Forgive me. No, better not forgive me. You'll be happier, and so shall I. Better Siberia than your love, for I love another woman, and you got to know her too well today, so how can you forgive? I will murder the man who's robbed me. I'll leave you all and go to the east so as to see no one again. Not her, either, for you are not my only tormentress. She is, too. Farewell. P.S. I write my curse, but I adore you. I hear it in my heart. One string is left, and it vibrates. Better tear my heart in two. I shall kill myself, but first of all that cur... I shall tear three thousand from him and fling it to you. Though I've been a scoundrel to you, I am not a thief. You can expect three thousand. 
the cur keeps it under his mattress in pink ribbon i'm not a thief but i'll murder my thief katya don't look disdainful dmitri is not a thief but a murderer he has murdered his father and ruined himself to hold his ground rather than endure your pride and he doesn't love you p p s i kiss your feet farewell p p p s katya pray to god that someone will give me the money then i shall not be steeped in gore and if no one does i shall kill me your slave and enemy d karamazov when ivan read this document he was convinced so then it was his brother not smerdyakov and if not smerdyakov then not he ivan this letter at once assumed in his eyes the aspect of a logical proof there could no longer be the slightest doubt of mitya's guilt the suspicion never occurred to ivan by the way that mitya might have committed the murder in conjunction with smerdyakov and indeed such a theory did not fit in with the facts ivan was completely reassured the next morning he only thought of smerdyakov and his jibes with contempt a few days later he positively wondered how he could have been so horribly distressed at his suspicions he resolved to dismiss him with contempt and forget him so passed a month he made no further inquiry about smerdyakov but twice he happened to hear that he was very ill and out of his mind he'll end in madness the young doctor varvinsky observed about him and ivan remembered this during the last week of that month ivan himself began to feel very ill he went to consult the moscow doctor who had been sent for by katerina ivanovna just before the trial and just at that time his relations with katerina ivanovna became acutely strained they were like two enemies in love with one another katerina ivanovna's returns to mitya that is her brief but violent revulsions of feeling in his favour drove ivan to perfect frenzy strange to say until that last scene described above when alyosha came from mitya to katerina ivanovna ivan had never once during that month heard her express a doubt of mitya's guilt in spite of those returns that were so hateful to him it is remarkable too that while he felt that he hated mitya more and more every day he realized that it was not on account of katya's returns that he hated him but just because he was the murderer of his father he was conscious of this and fully recognized it to himself nevertheless he went to see mitya 10 days before the trial and proposed to him a plan of escape a plan he had obviously thought over a long time he was partly impelled to do this by a sore place still left in his heart from a phrase of smerdyakov's that it was to his ivan's advantage that his brother should be convicted as that would increase his inheritance and alyosha's from forty to sixty thousand roubles he determined to sacrifice thirty thousand on arranging mitya's escape on his return from seeing him he was very mournful and dispirited he suddenly began to feel that he was anxious for mitya's escape not only to heal that sore place by sacrificing thirty thousand but for another reason 
Is it because I am as much a murderer at heart? He asked himself. Something very deep down seemed burning and rankling in his soul. His pride above all suffered cruelly all that month. But of that later. When, after his conversation with Alyosha, Ivan suddenly decided, with his hand on the bell of his lodging, to go to Smerdyakov, he obeyed a sudden and peculiar impulse of indignation. He suddenly remembered how Katerina Ivanovna had only just cried out to him in Alyosha's presence. It was you, you persuaded me of his, that is Mitya's, guilt. Ivan was thunderstruck when he recalled it. He had never once tried to persuade her that Mitya was the murderer. On the contrary, he had suspected himself in her presence, that time when he came back from Smerdyakov. It was she, she who had produced that document and proved his brother's guilt. And now she suddenly exclaimed, I've been at Smerdyakov's myself. When had she been there? Ivan had known nothing of it. So she was not at all so sure of Mitya's guilt. And what could Smerdyakov have told her? What, what had he said to her? His heart burned with violent anger. He could not understand how he could half an hour before have let those words pass and not have cried out at the moment. He let go of the bell and rushed off to Smerdyakov. I shall kill him, perhaps, this time, he thought on the way. End of chapter 7 of book 11 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey